Join us this evening, listeners, as we embark on a magical journey fun for the whole family, where you'll learn the value of believing in yourself, the importance of chasing your dreams, and the dangers of ritualized sacrifice to slake the ravenous hunger of hideous conquerors from beyond the stars. This is The Matter of Taste. out of my knuckle hair. You, you opened my eyes. <laughs> we are a hive mind. We are one. Oh, hey, little nepotiz. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's upsetting. Say the word. You know the word. <laughs> it's wackadoo. Good evening, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Matter of Taste. My name is Fio. I'm uh, here with my erstwhile companion, Ian. Hello. And uh, we are here to discuss uh, a little shop of horrors, but I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, we're focusing mostly on the 86 film. Um, we'll maybe allude to the uh, the Roger Corman film and the stage play, but I think the, the 86 film is our focus, yes? Uh, yeah, well... First of all, we should probably talk about how, hey, we're doing a summer musical series. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, we should bring that up. Um, so, yeah, th- this was, I, I want to say this was actually your idea, Theo. Uh, yeah, I, I brought it up a couple weeks ago. Uh, do we, do we want to get in, in, into what, what spurred that thought? <laughs> or would that be playing our hand as to what's happening next too early? <laughs> uh, would, uh, I, I mean, we can get into it. That's that's fine. I'm just remembering that you said that you what you were bored one night and watched Repo. Oh, at like three in the morning, like completely <laughs> drunk. Yeah, <laughs> and that was that sort of led into a discussion of horror musicals, and I was like, hey, we could we could actually talk about a bunch of different horror musicals because yeah, I they're... downloaded it and then immediately bought the Blu-ray at like three in the morning. Oh my gosh, I have the DVD. That's that's how early I was on that. Oh, the Blu-ray was seven dollars. It's not like it was a crazy yeah. expenditure, <laughs> but, uh, um, but yeah. Um. <laughs> so yeah, over the course of the summer, we're going to be back on a bi-weekly uh, schedule. Every other week, we'll be releasing an episode talking about a different musical. This first one is Little Shop of Horrors, and uh, stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out what the other ones are. <laughs> That feels like such a baity thing to say, so I'm just going to say right now, we're doing Repo, we're doing Evil Dead, we're doing Sweeney Todd, and we're also doing Rocky Horror. Yeah, that Um, was like audio clickbait. (laughs) Yeah, that was audio clickbait, and it made me feel slimy all over, so I was just like, no, no, we're not doing that. It doesn't really matter, because I mean, like, if they listened that far, we've already got the download registered anyway, so... (laughs) Oh, yeah. 
from a business perspective anyway. <laughs> um, but there, uh, I could list off the dates right now, but then it's, a, it's not, I don't see any point in doing that unless you like want to have a pen and paper ready to hear the dates, but we'll have a schedule on the, uh, the Tumblr that I'll link to in this post of when we're going to be releasing each episode on each particular musical. So like, if you haven't seen one, you can, uh, know in advance which one to watch. Um, I'm also considering trying to, uh, uh, live tweets, ooh, live tweets, live tweet my watches or rewatches. Yeah, I, I've seen all these. So my rewatches of each of these musicals, uh, Evil Dead, the musical, I don't believe has, uh, a, mo- <laughs> a, uh, recorded video, uh, of it. And I hesitated to say movie adaptation because, I mean, there's the original movie, but uh, I don't believe that there's been a filmed version of the musical. Uh, if someone can find one, I'm sure there are bootlegs, but I don't want to support running around to find bootlegs because theater, it's for being there in person, unless you don't have a ton of money to spend on Broadway, because that's a whole other discussion that we don't need to get into right now. But anyway... Yeah, I want to really, I want to dump multiple student loan payments to go see Hamilton right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, I'm going to try and uh, uh, sort of get a schedule up of when I'm going to be watching each of the movie adaptations of these musicals and live tweeting them. So if you want to watch along with me and join in on the live tweet, awesome. Uh, I will try to do them at times that people can actually watch them. I was thinking about it today and I was like, you know, I have the time during the day to watch these things because I am unemployed by choice. Uh, uh, but people, other people have day jobs and won't be able to watch it at like four in the afternoon, Eastern standard time, or I guess that'd be one in the afternoon Pacific standard time or any of the times in between. So, uh, I mean, if that's something that you want to do, let me know when works best for you, and we'll try. I'll try and see when uh, a bunch of people can watch it, and we'll have a we'll have a Twitter party. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, all that aside, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, was that your intro? Is that what? Okay. <laughs> well, I was like, well, Theo's the host, so. Yeah. No, I just are we. <laughs> so are we finished with the logistical stuff? Okay. Cool. Yes. Um, all right, so Little Shop of Horrors, we're we're focusing on the uh, 1986 film uh, directed by uh, Frank Oz. Yes, who uh, has quite a uh, filmography behind him. Uh, also responsible for uh, such uh, such classics as What About Bob? Um, I didn't realize he also directed Death at Funeral, which I love. Oh, actually. I don't know what other, uh, I don't know if I've seen any other Frank Oz directed movies. Yeah, I've only seen Little Shop of Horrors. I haven't seen Death at a Funeral. Although I've heard very good things about it. Oh my god, he showed up in, in Labyrinth. I didn't even realize he was in Labyrinth. Well, dude, he was, he was Muppets. He was so many Muppets. Right, yeah. <laughs> Oh and yeah, that, and that, I, would guess, I would guess you could expect him to show up in any kind of. Uh, yeah, and, and Labyrinth had so many Muppets. <laughs> that makes sense. I just saw I just saw Labyrinth show up in his uh, filmography, and without even thinking, it was like, 
Oh my god, Labyrinth! <laughs> oh, um, he directed the 2004 Stepford Wives. For some reason, I thought that was directed by Tim Burton. Hmm. The one with Nicole Kidman and Matthew Roderick. Yeah, I don't even know if I saw that. I saw that, and that was that was a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can attest to the fact that that was it, filmed. It was it was yeah. so long ago that I can't really say whether I I remember enjoying it and thinking it was cool at the time. I don't know what my feelings on it would be now. There right. there were some moments, you know, thinking about it in the context of Little Shop of Horrors. Now it makes sense because mm-hmm. that that friggin that friggin house set that they have during like the somewhere that's green sequence and then at the very end that is so Stepford Wives. It's so creepy. Mm. I mean, I, I don't, I, I'm sure that was slight, that was partly intentional, but it's like, this is supposed to be like, oh, it's a pretty, it's a nice fantasy, but even in this fantasy, we can't have something be not unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> and that was so many negatives, so I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> oh my. Uh, <laughs> so where do we, uh, where do we want to begin with Little Shop? Um, do we want to give, give like a short history of how it came to be, like where it started with the black and white film? Uh, yeah, let's just do that. <laughs> uh, the black and white film that had Jack Nicholson in it in like one of his first roles, I think. Yeah, and uh, just doing some research. Yeah, the, the original black and white film from uh, 1960. Uh, directed by Roger Corman, pretty much like one of the kings of B movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it actually says on his Wikipedia page that this was the fastest film he shot, uh, the 1960 Little Shop. That it was reportedly shot in two days and one night. The uh, the entire film. Oh yeah. Uh, so there's there's that. That's claimed citation needed. There's another that claims that. Uh, he only had the set rented for a month and uh, finished the film with three days to spare. Uh, or no, okay. Yeah, so this this also gives the the claim that he uh, he finished the film in two days and one night, that he finished a film Before and had that. a set rented for a month and then had three days to spare, so he shot an entire note. He shot Little Shop in those three days. Yeah. <laughs> There's so many B-movies from that era that it's just like, so many B movies from the era that turned that were adapted into like genuinely good pieces of uh, film and stuff. Like you've got like The Thing and uh, The Fly and uh, Little Shop. Although not to, of those, Little Shop is the only uh, original that I actually have seen. So I can't say about the quality of the original Fly or The Thing. Which the original the thing was was that the thing from outer space? Uh, yes, I actually have one of those movie posters. Oh, <laughs> I have like an old movie poster. Uh, from the thing, I think it's called the thing that came from outer space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it sort of makes sense to uh, remake those sorts of movies because it's like, like it's a, it was the thing from another world. Oh, okay. Like, because I was just, I was just thinking of the remake of The Blob, which <laughs> we don't need to get into that entirely. But there are things that you could do in the modern age that you couldn't do then, and like, they're 
they're movies that have an interesting enough idea to mine out that they just didn't have the resources or the time or maybe even the the, the ability to uh to uh mine out in an interesting way in the originals which is why they're considered B movies. I'm sorry, my brain keeps tangenting. What were we talking about? <laughs> we were you wanted to trace the uh, the origins of this film. Yes. So we've got the 1960 low budget black and white film by Roger Corman. Yes. And then you've got Alan Menken and Howard Ashman before Disney going, hey, let's make a musical based on this. Uh, and then that being, uh, uh, adapted, that being adapted for the stage and then from the stage being adapted for the 1986 movie. Um, and that's, that's basically it. That's the history of it. Um, I didn't actually read up it as to why Howard Ashman and Alan Menken felt like... That's, that's my question, and I was hoping you would have the answer to that. I mean, uh, we can, uh, uh, look at the Wikipedia article. Oh, boy. We promise you... We promise you that this this whole episode isn't just going to be us reading off the Wikipedia articles. As we remind you constantly, we are consummate professionals. Consummate professionals. Oh man. Uh, I am. Oh yeah, and also just for shits and giggles, in 1991 they had an animated series. I think I vaguely remember that. It ran for one season on Fox Kids. If it was on Fox Kids, I definitely saw, like, reruns or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and the Wikipedia article isn't really giving any background as to why they decided to uh, adapt this movie, this particular story, into a musical. <laughs> uh, well, here's one thing. Howard Ashman wrote in the introduction to the acting edition of the libretto that the show satirizes many things, science fiction, B-movies, musical comedy itself, and even the Faust legend. So that's a place to start. Uh, the fact that it's satirizing so many things that I feel like the tone is all over the place in, a, in some ways. Yeah. It was interesting watching this movie, and I was getting that sort of, like, tonal inconsistency vibe that... Uh, I sort of got while watching Twin Peaks, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. I think that that's it, it. It seems like it's stemming from a similar place where they're trying to satirize certain things, but also taking certain things genuinely. And when you're dry, doing that stuff, it's like, well, what what's what's real and what's not? Yeah, and I think when you're when you're doing that sort of thing, it has to be very intentional. Like like for it to work. Um, you, you have to be like, in, like, it has to be the creator's intention for you to question whether or not we should be taking this seriously. And I think that can be used, now I'm just tangenting, but I think that can be used in a very poignant way. But yes, I do, uh, I do agree. Um, that tonally, this movie is a little all over the place. Everything from, everything with the dentist seems like it's from another movie. Oh my gosh. The <laughs> dentist. That, like, I don't even know how to feel about the dentist in this day and age, because it's like, like, I was trying to think, like, okay, how do I feel about the portrayal of abuse 
in such a like this this black comedy and that's kind of campy but then they they like it's so it's so weird it's so weird and i'm just like well i guess they have to make him out to be a really bad guy so that you don't feel terrible about seymour when he decides to kill him you're sort of like rooting for seymour but then what is that it's like one of the things that is kind of kind of interesting about this is that it's consistently morally inconsistent (laughs) (laughs) if that's fair yeah yeah i can see that but, uh, yeah, the whole, the, the dentist stuff is just, like, I mean, Steve Martin, like, even with Stephen Martin, like, Steve Martin, after he does his first song, the You'll Be a Dentist song, mm-hmm. uh, he has his first scene of just straight acting, it's, he's not singing or anything, and he made some acting choices with that character. <laughs> I'm just sitting there watching him trying to do, like, this bad boy thing, but not completely... Like, I feel like he himself wasn't completely into it, but he's like, well, this is what the character is, so we're doing a campy horror B-movie thing. Let's let's just go for it. But not entirely. <laughs> and then, oh yeah, let's just throw in a Bill Murray cameo for the heck of it. Playing uh, the role that Jack Nicholson played in the original black and white movie, which was taken out of the stage musical. Yeah, I guess it's because the uh, because in the previous film it was like, well, from from the perspective of somebody somebody who would have been making this film in the '80s, looking back, like, and then Jack Nicholson out of nowhere, like, <laughs> I guess that Frank Oz was like, oh, you know, it'd be funny, and then Bill Murray out of nowhere. <laughs> well, and again, that specific scene. I don't know, like, it's clear that they're trying to do something specific with it, but I have no fucking clue what they're trying to say with it. Basically, they're, basically it feels like they were sitting together and they're like, okay, dentists, stereotypically, like, the dentist is a horrible place to be, so let's actually make the dentist a sadist. So let's have a masochist go into his office and then uh, see what happens there. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, part of me, like... <laughs> wants to applaud them for the fact that they a lot of this just seems like hey that sounds fun let's do that <laughs> yeah it feels it feels like um it's, <laughs> it's like one of those things that uh, we we would bring up in college like you're not allowed to call it a plan if one of the steps in your plan is see what happens or <laughs> come up with a plan <laughs> well, like, yeah. uh, it's i feel like <laughs> when this script was finished there's just areas of the script where it was like, in brackets, see what happens. And it was like, they got to the day of shooting, like, uh, we didn't come up with... Okay. Uh... <laughs> see, that's the thing, though. This is already an adaptation of two other things, so it's like, they already have... They, they, had, to, they had to keep the spirit of the originals, man. <laughs> that, that undeniable slapdash energy. <laughs> I mean, and I mean, How- Howard Ashman, the lyricist, did write the script, the screenplay to the movie, so. <laughs> and it's, and it always, a uh, very quick little tangent, it always boggles my mind thinking about, like, the way that movies are now, it feels like everything has to be very concrete and set in stone, and there can't, like, when you actually get on set, 
because of how much money they're spending on these things, they they have to be pretty much set in stone. There's very little room for rewrites or anything like that. Like, they still do reshoots, but it'll be for very specific things. Whereas, like, you hear stories about, like, I remember watching a documentary on Casablanca and how it's just, like, uh, they, they're just, like, re, like, it seems like there was a lot of rewriting during the process. Or maybe I'm just not familiar enough with the modern movie business where maybe there is still a lot of that that organic I think it's I think it's more likely to happen on comedies where there's possibly the chance of improv and stuff mm-hmm. but it's just like when I think about you're making this movie and uh, you're sitting there on the day and you're like you know what this isn't working let's do something different and that's that's part of the process sometimes you have to do that yeah. like coming from a perspective where like we we studied creative writing in college and that's what's written on the page is what's written on the page <laughs> It's not like someone gets halfway through the book and it's like a page turn and the page is just suddenly like, and then something happens. You make it up in your head. Although I'm sure there are people who have done that. I don't know. I, it is kind of different for, because you're, you're talking about like rewriting happening on the set, but you know, it's not like that. Again, it's not like that happens in a film either. Like you're not you don't watch a film and then halfway through they're like we didn't there's like just a title card for three seconds like sorry we didn't come up with anything for this yeah uh, just <laughs> insert your own here mm-hmm. um, but like with a novel or you know with any of our writing when you're getting workshopped you just hear people saying like yeah this this wasn't working for me and then you sit there and seethe like of course it's not you don't understand <laughs> yeah as I was saying I wasn't totally in, it, it, like believing or into what I was saying. And I, I guess I think the it's interesting to me from a film perspective because you have so many other hands in the pot at that point. You've got the actors, you've got the crew, and you've got all the producers and everything. Well, I found it, uh, I found it kind of amusing. Um, <clears throat> I picked up the Deadpool Blu-ray when that came out. Uh, and uh, on their blooper reel... Half of their outtakes are just like scenes of Ryan Reynolds and TJ Miller, like in various scenes, just rattling off a bunch of different lines, just like trying them out to see if they worked. That's pretty awesome. Like that entire thing where uh, he first comes back after his surgery or whatever, and he's talking to TJ Miller, and TJ Miller says, like, uh, uh, you know, you look like. Uh, an avocado had sex with an older, uglier avocado, and like, yeah. that's the whole thing. Yeah. Um, there's like 14 or 15 other ones. Oh, I, 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 I was. That does not surprise me in the slightest. That seemed like the sort of thing that they did with that scene. Yeah, <laughs> I think my favorite was it was something like you look like Shrek took a shit on your neck, and then it was in a train fire. Oh my god! <laughs> but uh. But yeah, I mean, I know that, that that whole spirit of improvisation, depending on what the movie is, that there could very well be parts of the script that they don't even bother writing because it's like, well, we already know we have this actor for it. They're good at improv. Yeah. Um, there's that story that uh, there's a story that like Scrubs Scrubs uh, scripts never scripted anything for the janitor. Oh yeah, yeah. It just had just... like, and then whatever Neil says here. Yes. Which of course doesn't work all the time because of course they have conversations and shit. But still, like, <sighs> I'm not sure if that's the case here. <laughs> mm-hmm. I uh, 
I don't know if they if they left out whole sections of the script. Um, <laughs> I suppose we'd have to actually take a look at the script to uh, to be able to discern that. I wonder if it's in like a warehouse, like one of those online script warehouses or something, because you can get a lot of movie scripts offline. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sort of going back to the whole thing of how how much weird stuff is in this movie. It, it sort of makes me, it, it, it sort of made me think of another thing that, another thought I had about horror musicals in general, is that, like, especially the ones that we're going to be talking about, aside from, aside from Sweeney, I think, which Sweeney had, it, it was accomplishing a very specific thing, and uh, Stephen Sondheim crafted the hell out of that, um... I think there's a specific type of person who likes horror movies and who likes musicals. And so almost by, uh, almost by its nature, a horror musical is just going to be off the wall. <laughs> yeah. It seems like most horror movie, uh, most horror musicals that aren't adaptations of more serious content, uh, seem to be just like bonkers. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. Uh, what what would you be what would you be speaking of in terms of like more serious content? Well, like like uh, before we start talking, I was talking about how like Phantom of the Opera that's oh. a hor- that could be considered a horror musical, and it is it is a pretty uh, uh, straightforward story. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jekyll and Hyde uh, has also been adapted into a musical, and that's also a pretty straightforward story. Something like Little Shop or Rocky Horror, there is so much that, again, it's sort of that, like, throw everything at the wall and see what sticks, uh, thing that makes these movies cult movies, where it's like, we don't know if they completely, like, we don't know exactly what they're trying to accomplish necessarily, and we don't know if they accomplished it, but by Jove, they had fun doing it. Right, well, I think... In terms of, uh, like, Phantom, I think Phantom uses a lot of, uh, a lot of tools of more, like, romantic or Victorian, yeah. uh, Victorian horror stories. Whereas the ones that, a lot of the stories that we're talking about, um, the reason that they're so bonkers, as, as, as you were saying, uh, is that they, they do use a lot of more modern, uh, like, more modern horror tools and scenarios. Oh, yeah. Um, and in terms of, like, modern horror films, the the tool set that they have and the tool set of the musical are essentially at cross-purposes. Um, <laughs> like, so they, I think whenever you put those together, you inevitably end up with something with this sort of... Like, a, a lot of the films that we're talking about because um, I think we're mainly focusing on films. Although with Sweeney, I, 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 we'd probably focus on the, we'd probably focus on like the cast recording and yeah. uh, Evil Dead. Obviously, is we we've got the stage edition. We do, we don't have a recorded version aside from the film itself. Um, but a lot of them have this like anarchic energy to them. Yeah. Just because you know you have these two uh, these two genres that are just down to their DNA operate on a different different wavelength because like a lot of modern horror films require you 
to uh, to sort of subsume yourself into the dream of the film um, in order to be effectively scared by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the tools that they use to do that, and of course, you know, we can go back to writing tips 101. You, you never want to break the dream. But the the tools that a horror the horror films as we've we've seen them uh, in the modern day used to do that are almost entirely shattered by somebody breaking into the song like into song in the middle of something. Very true. So, in order for that scene to still work on like a narrative and emotional level, you've got to do some real like acting and set design and script gymnastics just to. Everybody in a lot of these films is trying so hard to sell you on what's going on. Mm-hmm. There's something I want to say about musicals as a genre and musicals as a form, but I think that's something that's better saved for when we talk about Sweeney. Okay. Uh, and like, there's there's a lot of things. I have a lot of opinions on on. On that whole subject matter, but again, like we've, we've already tangented a bunch and we should probably just get back to Little Shop of Horrors, so, uh, I won't, I won't lead us down that rabbit hole. Um, but Little Shop of Horrors. How did you get introduced to this film? Oh god, dude, I have no idea. <laughs> this is one of those, this is one of those movies that you pick up almost through cultural osmosis. Ah. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I cannot, I could not pinpoint you a time when, like, I didn't at least vaguely know that it existed. <laughs> like, uh, I, I probably couldn't tell you what the fucking title of it was, but I could definitely... Like, tell you the whole, feed me Seymour. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, feed me Seymour has penetrated the cultural consciousness. Yeah. So so you pick up on it somewhere, um, but it's one of those, like, early formative memories that, yeah, I I could not pinpoint you the first time, because I don't know. I don't even remember the first time I saw it. Like, maybe I saw parts of it on TV or something. Like <laughs> they, they do show it on TV from time to time, which is, like, it, it again, it's one of those those quote-unquote cult classics that just ends up on TV from time to time. I think I want to I say I caught part of it on TV when sci-fi still used to run Mystery Science Theater in the mornings. Oh, yeah, that might be, that might be when I saw it too. When sci-fi used to run MST3K on like Saturday mornings. Yeah. Two or three, two or three hours or like, you know, a couple hours in a row. Yeah. Um, Maybe I saw part of it there. I, (laughs) but I could not tell you when the first time I saw it was. I don't remember when specifically I saw it, which, I, my first exposure to it, I think was, it was probably like on sci-fi on, on a Saturday or something. And I wasn't even, I didn't even see it from the beginning. I saw like the last scene with the, uh, Mean Green Mother song. And uh, I remember, I, I, I do remember that I was young at the time. I remember being, feeling scandalized by the line, I'm going to bust your balls. Um, and that sort oh of like, God. oh my God, I can so see young Ian being taken aback by that line. 
but in that sort of excited, like, oh my gosh, he just said a, a, a yeah. like dirty thing. Yeah. Oh my god, that's amazing. That's so on brand. <laughs> it really is in a painful way. <laughs> I'm sorry. Continue. Um, and then uh, the other thing I remember about it is for the next two nights, I had the worst nightmares about it. Huh. <laughs> Which, again, we've talked about on the podcast before. I watched Alien and Aliens when I was way too young to be watching those movies. Yeah. Uh, which, side note, uh, this movie was nominated at the Oscars for Best Visual Effects, for Best Special Effects, but lost to Aliens. Um. Yeah, okay. Just a little bit of trivia. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> but those movies never gave me nightmares. Little Shop of Horrors gave me nightmares. <laughs> Man, I um, can't remember <clears throat> movies giving me nightmares when I was a kid. The only other one I like, the other one I remember specifically is the uh, the TV adaptation of It. Hmm. I yeah, young Seth Green and uh, John Ritter and uh, <laughs> God, that was a and was Tim a, Curry. Yeah, Tim Curry was awesome. Tim Curry was terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, Tim Curry killed in that film. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it, and then... <laughs> <laughs> Didn't mean it, but there you go. Um, <laughs> we narrowly averted a, a long string of plant puns on Twitter today when I uh, mentioned I was live-tweeting, and uh, Kevin from Matt... Uh, this is a matter of taste. Kevin well, from yeah, Matt Fail. You, when, when you're having a discussion with Kevin, you never want to... You know, start with a pun and plant that seed. Uh, <laughs> that was intentional, right? Yes, it was. Okay, thank, you. thank you. Now that was that was just pure me being a dick. That was. Okay. <laughs> oh man. Oh yeah, little shop. I can't believe. Yeah, little shop. Uh, this the weirdest things give kids nightmares though. Yeah. But watching it this time around, I could, like, I don't know, uh, I, I can point to a bunch of different things that could have given me nightmares. Like, I think specifically it was just, like, the 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 design of Audrey 2, especially that final form. This is my final form. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it's the, uh, the, uh, the long-awaited Little Shop Dragon Ball Z crossover. Yes. Um, that, that final form that Audrey 2 takes is, it's like, it's, it's kind of Lovecraftian. It's, yeah. it's this, like, it's this big monster and it's not like fish people influenced or anything like that, but it's this very monstrous creature that there, I, I can't think of any monster in any other media that looks like Audrey 2. Like, you could probably point to different things that have a similar vibe, like in video games, like maybe a boss creature that has, like, or you could even point to the, uh, the, uh, flower on the back of, uh, Ivysaur, possibly. <laughs> um, but there's, like, the design for Audrey 2, it, it's such a specific thing, and, uh, it, 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 I think it's still genuinely creepy, especially the, because they used practical effects for it. Yeah. Um, 
And like that now looking at it, it now looking at the movie now, I can see different things that are just creepy. Like the way that it's filmed, it's sort of filmed like, uh, it's interesting because a lot of movie musicals receive criticism for feeling like it's just a filmed version of a stage production. And yeah. that, that was especially the case early on in movies when they were basically just doing that. Yeah. Um, but, but with this, like they have the, uh, the, the doo-wop singers and they, they use them as narrators the way that they're filmed, like, it's clear that they're breaking the fourth wall, and the, it, there's something I found genuinely unsettling about that. Like, there are a few shots of them, especially in the opening number, that either they're shot head-on or, like, from slightly below, and there's just something creepy about that. Like, they're singing, and it's not like they're part of this big ensemble, it's like they're in the foreground, and I, I don't know, it, it's something that I think I would have to analyze a little more, uh, like formally and and take a little more time to think about, but there's just something unsettling about the way this movie was filmed, uh, and like the color palette and the sets, the fact that it's 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 clearly it, it it's clearly a set. It's not an actual street corner, but it, and that's not to say that the set looks bad. It's that, but it, the set actually looks really cool. But even that, it's it's slightly stylized. It's like because it's a set and not an actual street corner, um. Yeah, it was just fascinating watching it now and feeling that unsettling nature and just like, where is that coming from? Like, it's, there's so many, there's that cognitive dissonance happening in my brain. I'm not sure what specifically it's coming from. But that may just be me. I don't know how the movie made you feel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I, I can kind of see what you're, where you're coming from there. I mean, there is, I, I do think there is something uh, very intentionally off-putting about uh, the, the cho- the, a lot of the um, choices in cinematography in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to say, like, yeah, we, we haven't seen uh, any, uh, many creatures that really fit Audrey II's design in uh, cinema, um, although we don't have a uh, an exact overabundance of plant creatures to be fair. Very true. There's like this and Day of the Triffids and <laughs> there are like a few different things we could talk about. We could talk about the music, we could talk about the plot. Uh we could talk about the casting. We could talk about uh sort of jumping off what you were just talking about uh well jumping off the off-putting thing like the Again, the, the tonal inconsistency of how, like, there are these really, really campy moments. Like, when, I, and I didn't realize this as I was watching it, but when Christopher Guest comes in as the first customer, and he is very, like, it's very clearly just a campy, oh, hey, I came in because of the plant over there. Like, that's basically the line. Yeah. It's like making, like, we're just like, we're just gonna move along with it. We're moving the plot along, guys. Just, just go with it. <laughs> it's like you, you, you all understand what we're trying to do in this scene. We're not gonna waste our time trying to make it pretty or literary or anything like 
carefully crafted. It's just like, hey, this is what needs to happen in the scene, so there it is. And it's going to be funny. This is where we need to go. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because of that. It's because it's almost like they aren't even trying. Uh, But things become unfunny when you explain them. I shouldn't... What am I doing? Anyway. (laughs) Uh... Uh... What do you think of the music? <laughs> I I don't generally have nuanced opinions on on music. I think that's uh that's more your uh your cup of tea. I mean, I enjoyed it. I, I uh hmm. Mainly when it comes to musicals, what I what I'm I'm just trying to make sure it's not at odds with with oh. what's going on, you know? Yeah. Like uh, I uh, how how should I phrase this? On a very basic, simplistic level, what I'm looking for is for uh, the music to be uh, lyrically an honest expression of whatever I think the character is feeling at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, again, a very, very basic thing because I, I don't have nuanced opinions on music for the <laughs> most part. I, that's not my tool set. Uh, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I enjoyed it. I, <laughs> I, well, it's, it's a, it's a fair thing to say because if it, it, you, like, like with anything, you don't want something to take you out of the story. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I think, like, musicals are already, teetering on that edge a bit if yeah. you're not willing to suspend disbelief which for the, you know for the most part I'm fine with mm-hmm. uh, but <clears throat> just the but in the musical DNA you're already operating in a uh, in a heightened universe yeah and you know you have to walk into that buying into it so I feel like the chance to pull somebody out of the chance to pull somebody out of the narrative is a bit greater yes. with a musical than in another story. Like, my, my dad can't watch musicals at all. He mm-hmm. hates them. Uh, but that's a complete aside. Anyway. <laughs> no, but it is something to, to think about. And, like, it, it's something that I, I'm always not... It, I'm always not... What am I saying? <laughs> uh... It's something that I'm not always thinking about, but I need to be aware of, especially in the stuff that I write, because, like, uh, I've written a rock opera, and uh, I, I like writing uh, storytelling music, and so I, like, from a very young age, I was immersed in that sort of music, like, listening to cast albums and stuff like that, so it, it seems very natural for me to burst out into song about something, for when characters burst out into song about things, but... For other people who weren't, didn't grow up in that sort of environment and aren't as acclimated to that, it can be very jarring. And that's not an un, uh, that's not like an invalid experience. Yeah. It's, it, it's, it is, people don't just burst out into song talking about their feelings in real life. Like the Buffy musical episode lampshades that in a great way, how it's like, yeah, this is, we, musicals are kind of weird, but they're kind of cool, but they're also kind of weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, like, when it comes to the music for, for this movie in particular, uh, 
number one, another another kind of reason that we're doing this summer musical series is that you and I are working on our own musical. Um, and uh, specifically, it's got those sort of those sort of 50 influences. And so part of me was watching this also with that uh, student cap on of like, okay, what, what can I learn from this that we can apply to what we're working on? Yeah. Um, and it is really interesting to have that very traditional, uh, these very traditional music stylings, like, uh, like, a what's a, First friggin' song, "Grow for Me." That's a very, very typical '50s uh, doo-wop type thing, and he's talking about feeding a plant. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's another thing that that it's it's a it, it it's interesting thinking about it in the context of something like this because you wonder how much of the cognitive dissonance. Uh, is intentional and how much is not intentional because uh, like campy stuff that is basically designed to take you out of the story for laughs. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there is something to be said about how, uh, having, uh, this, these lyrics with almost like what could be considered contrasting musical styles, uh, adding to, uh, the the humor or the the that particular tone offbeat tone, um, and then once you're acclimated to that musical vocabulary, you can do stuff like, uh, I, I you can do stuff like somewhere that's green, which was a, which is a little more genuine, or like I think of supper time, uh, where like. On the surface level, you hear that title, it is a goofy thing to write a song about, possibly. Mm-hmm. But by that point in the story, if you weren't on board, then you were never going to be on board. But if you are on board, then it's like, it actually is a tense moment. It's like, oh, oh crap, what is Seymour going to do here? Yeah. And you're not thinking about, wait, why are, why are they singing over this, these like, Doo-wop singers saying, come on, Krellborn. Why are they doing this murder scene with this, like, not very murdery music necessarily? Uh, they, there's so much, like, there's no way we, in the time we have on a podcast we're going to be able to have an incredibly complex discussion about what goes into the composition of a musical like Little Shop of Horrors, but it's interesting to bring up and sort of explore a little bit. Um, speaking of supper time, I fucking love the bass line in that song. I'm just gonna throw it out that out there. <laughs> like when that when they start singing the "Come on, Prelborn." It's such a, like, it's, like, first time I heard that and was actually, uh, like, first time I heard that was probably very recently, and uh, I was like, wait, that's being played on the bass. That doesn't sound like a typical, that's not a bass line that I heard, right? That's not a typical sounding bass line to me, and I was just like, that is so cool. (laughs) 
Yeah, there, there's there's like so many different discussions we could have about the music in a more general sense, and I feel like if we do that, then we're just gonna we're like we should probably stick closer to Little Shop of Horrors. There and there are discussions that we can have over the course of these this musical series and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you? Uh, what's what's your opinion on the uh, the endings? The endings. Uh, I. Uh, it's interesting because, like, reading up on it in the, the Wikipedia article, uh, it talks about how Howard Ashman and uh, the and Frank Oz and I think even one of the producers were totally into uh, directly adapting the ending from the play. Which, for those who don't know, the way the play, the stage play, the stage musical ends. Uh, Basically, everyone gets eaten, and the plants inherit the earth. <laughs> um, the plants take over, and humanity dies. <laughs> they that that ending they filmed, and uh, didn't go over well with test audiences. Yeah, uh, they were just like like they talk about in the uh, in the Wikipedia article how uh, like. The audience is loving it. They, the, like, for every musical number, there was applause. They loved it. It was just fantastic. Until the main characters die, and then the theater became a refrigerator, an icebox. It was awful, and the cards were just awful. You just have to have a 55% recommend to really be released, and we got thir- a 13. <laughs> it was a complete <laughs> disaster. Um, and the, uh, the, the reasoning that Frank Oz gave, gave is Oz later recounted, I learned a lesson. In a stage play, you kill the leads and they come out for a bow. In a movie, they don't come out for a bow. They're dead. They're gone, and so the audience lost the people they loved, as opposed to the theater audience, where they knew the two people who played Audrey and Seymour were still alive. They loved those people, and they hated us for it. That said... Like, that, 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 that may be true. I just I, I find that like that opinion fascinating. Yeah, it is really fascinating because it doesn't come out of story; it comes out of presentation. Yeah. Uh, and and specifically with movies, there's a lot of decisions that are made uh, based on uh, stuff that has nothing to do with story. <laughs> <laughs> and so while while that may be true, I do find that reasoning a little problematic. Because I think there's a version of the movie where you could do the ending and it, it works. But w- w- what's your opinion on it? I don't know. I've, I've never seen the... Uh, um, I've never seen any version of the original ending. So, mm-hmm. like, I've never seen the stage play. Um, apparently, you can get a director's cut of the film that has the original ending in it. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I but I have Blu-ray that, so I uh, I can't give a nuanced opinion of how effective the original ending might be because you never know. Like it could have. I don't want to be like uh, dismissive and say like, "Oh, well, the audience just didn't get it." Like you know, yeah. Um, because I think it's the I from from a narrative perspective. I definitely prefer the idea of the original ending. Like, uh-huh. the... The... 
the reshot ending seems like such a cop out. <laughs> um, especially because it's like, like you you killed a bunch of dudes, man. Yeah, and we're just uh, <laughs> we're just gonna skip merrily off into the distance. Like we're not gonna address this, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll have the or is it ending? Yeah. Uh, but like, I feel like from, from my, as far as my storytelling instincts go, that, that marriage cannot work. Do you know what I mean? Like, not, not in a somewhat, not in the way that it's presented here, if that makes sense. Oh, Seymour and Audrey's marriage? Yeah. Uh. Well, like, <laughs> if, uh, God, <clears throat> I feel like in order for it, in order for it to be like, uh, what, what's, what am I trying to articulate narratively in, in order for it to be like narratively honest, as far as the rest of the story goes, that entire ending would have to be played up for, like, further black comedy for it to work for me, personally. Uh, like, it would have to directly address, like, and he killed a bunch of people, but nobody cares! Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, from from that perspective, the, the ending that's in the theatrical cut does feel weaker to me, and I feel like, even though I haven't seen it, the original ending sounds like it would be better. Mm. Um, huh. But, fr- from the perspective of somebody who... Uh, just suffered a devastatingly emotional narrative loss this week. I also understand the <laughs> impetus of not uh, not wanting to murder off the only characters you've become invested in in a narrative. Well, yeah, it's. I kind of part of me wishes I hadn't done the live tweet today because because of that watching the movie, I had that little level of detachment from it, and so I wonder how I'd feel about it if I if I watch the movie again without having to worry about anything else, because for me, I, uh, because of the tonal inconsistencies and everything, I have a hard time getting invested in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, like when, when I saw uh, the only stage version I've seen is the stage version that my old high school put on, which was great. Like they, they did such a great job with it. They built their own sets. They rented a Audrey two costume and they did a great job with it, but the vibe I got from the stage musical is that it, it seemed more, and maybe it was just because of the way that the the drama club at my high school acted it, but it, it seemed to be a little more consistent in that it's like, oh, it's this this campy thing, and like, yeah, none of this, none of this is really gonna work out the way you want it, and you sort of get that vibe from the beginning, but with the movie, because you've got these actors that it's interesting because, like, the reasoning that I have, again, is almost, it's not so much a story reason as a presentation thing, but I feel like the way that the movie was shot, they, uh, it's, you get a little bit closer to the characters than you could in a stage production. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just because you have close-ups or, or, or things like that, but because you have these scenes where, these shots where it's just Audrey and Seymour, and, like, there's the chemistry between the actors 
and the way that the sh- the movie is cut, uh, you get these little moments, especially like with the somewhere that's green sequence. You get to see that whole dream sequence in Audrey's mind, and uh, even though because of the way that that set is and the way it's shot, there are parts of it that are still really creepy and off-putting. <laughs> um, you get those moments where it's like, oh, this is. You, like, for me, you do get a little more invested in the characters than you might just watching a stage production. And again, I haven't seen a whole ton of stage productions of, uh, of, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. So I, I can't say specifically about that. I'm sure that there are versions of the stage production that I'd be totally, totally invested in it. And, and, uh, but I, I think, I think the issue that I run into is that I, uh, I, because I have a disconnect with the story, uh, in the stage version and in the movie version, I find myself trying to figure out what the narrative is actually trying to accomplish. Like, I, 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 uh, I think I'd have to watch it again to be able to have a more articulate opinion because the way I was viewing it today when I watched it, I, I, uh, I wasn't sort of like, I wasn't looking at it through the lens of just like, oh, I'm going to follow the story and these are the character arcs of these particular characters. There was something about it where because of that detachment, either because I was live tweeting or, or whatever, I, I, got to the end of the movie and I wasn't thinking about, well, what I was, I was thinking about like, do I think this is a better ending than the original ending? But I don't feel like I can come to a conclusion because of the way I watched it. And I feel like I'm just rambling now and not making any sense whatsoever, but (laughs) well, this is why when I, uh, when I had the live or when I was live tweeting episodes of Hannibal, I absolutely had to watch it again before before doing the podcast mm-hmm. because you know mm-hmm. and with that I think it, to, not to compare but I think with when we were doing Hannibal especially in the third season to give an actual opinion on the episode it is pretty important to get lost in that dream yeah as opposed to sitting back and trying to make shitty comments which was my job while live tweeting yes <laughs> yeah to be aggressively detached from the narrative so you can make shitty mm. comments on it. And so, yeah, that because of that, because I wasn't lost in the narrative of the movie, I, I feel like I can't really give an educated opinion on uh, which I feel is a better ending. I, I will say I like both endings. I liked the uh, original ending when I saw the stage version. I thought it worked, and they, they did a really great job with the humor in the high school production that I saw. And so... Uh, when you get to that ending, it didn't feel like uh, a big... It, it, it didn't feel like... It, it felt like a dark comedy. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the movie, I could see how uh, it like there is a bit more... I think the romance plot is a little more prevalent. And so because of that, I could see how it would be really off-putting for people to get that ending. But uh, but 
From a writing perspective, I can't say whether or not which ending I think makes more sense narratively because I I, I haven't that I, I'd have to watch the movie again. I think. Right. I I will agree though that it does. <laughs> there are moments in that in the theatrical ending where it's like, yeah, this was sort of slapped together a little hurriedly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and like the. <laughs> When the, the 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 final song, the Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, oh, when uh, Audrey Two first goes into that chorus and says Mean Green Mother from Outer Space, I I sort of like they cut to a, a close up of Rick Moranis and he's like Outer Space, and I sort of like just face palmed like that was that was a very that to me was a very campy thing to do. It's like yeah yeah. <laughs> Dude, they cut 23 minutes from this. Can you imagine that? In, like, dude, uh, we're we're gonna probably gonna talk about that a little bit more with uh, when we talk about Repo, because I have opinions about the way that mu- musicals are ad- adapted into movies and how cutting stuff can really hurt the narrative structure. Um, and- yeah, Repo's Repo's a mess. Yeah, and not to say that you shouldn't cut anything when you're adapting into a a movie, but very briefly I'll talk about it here because, again, I'm not as invested in Little Shop of Horrors, so I I can't speak about it so much specifically in reference to Little Shop of Horrors, but very briefly, the way that stage musicals are written, uh, like... And ones that, especially ones that have received a lot of critical acclaim, like Sweeney Todd, or like even just because it's topical, Hamilton, Mm -hmm. um, they uh, have been they they've been working on them for years and years, and they've been very carefully crafted. Or here's here's one specific, more recent one that I can specifically talk about: Into the Woods. That had a very specific structure in the stage version and was trying to accomplish a very specific thing. When they adapted it into a movie, they made cuts that, in retrospect, I feel made the, like, hurt the narrative structure a lot and also changed the changed what they were trying to accomplish with the musical, and I don't think they were completely successful because of the ways, the changes that they made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is a whole other story. Again, I didn't want to get too deep into that, but just briefly bring it up now, because it's probably something we're going to touch on again, since we're talking about movie adap- a lot of movie adaptations of musicals, um, and something we can talk about again with Sweeney. Um, yeah, no, I just I find it crazy that they... Uh... I find it, like, you know, really ridiculous that they cut that uh, that 23 minutes off the end when it says it cost, they, they thought, the, it estimated the ending cost them $5 million, right? Yeah. Can you imagine a movie today performing so poorly in initial screenings that they just lopped off a sixth of their budget? <laughs> And had to completely redo it. Like, that is, that is unheard of. <laughs> like, a full sixth of your entire budget for that film. Like, that's bonkers. <laughs> yeah. 
And I'm sure we'll like there's we'll probably have somebody like, oh well this movie did it and you know, but mm-hmm. just for just reading that I was like, that's whoa. Yeah. <laughs> My brain was just bumping back to the previous discussion about uh getting invested in characters and stuff. And one thing I will say is one of the things that actually did work for me character-wise in this movie were the scenes between uh, Krellborn and Audrey too. I feel like those were the ones that worked the most for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, maybe it's because like it, it's might be a similar thing with as, as uh, with uh, Twin Peaks. Like those felt. I, I don't want to say least campy, but like there's some genuine tension in those scenes. And also there's like the, the relationship that they, they develop over the course of the movie. I don't know what my brain does. <laughs> I don't know why that specifically, maybe it's because I really didn't know how to feel about Audrey and the dentist that I latched onto something else where it's like, well, there's no real world reference for this. So I'm going to focus yeah. on that. <laughs> oh man. I think you've, you've got a point there though. Cause like, yeah, those scenes are pretty, uh, pretty tremendous. Like I, I specifically think about, uh, like the shot when Krellborn leans in to Audrey too, and he, they're both just singing, uh, "The guy sure looks like uh, plant food to me." Like that's such a great moment. And it's like, hey, he's bonding with someone. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to be a murderous plant from outer space, but hey. Yeah, it feels like their relationship was the one that developed the more the most organically. Oh. <laughs> All right, we deserve that. <laughs> <laughs> Finally got one in. Not bad, not bad. I don't know. Is there anything else we want to talk about with this movie? Not in particular. One of the, like I mentioned this on Twitter, but one of the things I do miss from the stage, which because I was familiar with the movie first, I I'm, I think I must have seen the the whole movie before I saw the stage version because the whole there's a whole song in the dentist office when uh, Oren the dentist puts the uh, nitrous oxide thing on. Mm-hmm. And uh, he dies from it. Yeah. Which I I feel like they may have cut that that song uh, so that they could have the Bill Murray cameo. Mm. But uh, there's a song in the in the stage version that uh, that Seymour sings basically while sitting in the waiting room, I think, and then it con- continues into. Uh, into him going into the office and that whole sequence. And it's, I, I believe it's called Now It's Just the Gas. And it starts off with Oren singing about how he loves the nitrous oxide. And he's just like, oh, I can't take it off. Uh, and then while he's sitting there, while he's like wrestling with this mask, it, it like uh, in the production I watched, the spotlight went on Seymour. And he's just talking about how like, he's he's singing about how like, Oh wait a second. Maybe I don't have to shoot this guy. And there's a line, a lyric in the song where he says, like he says, "Uh, I could finish him with simple laissez-faire." <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just really enjoyed that. 
when I first saw it on the, on the stage because I I wasn't familiar with the song. Yeah, it was it was it's a great line because <laughs> that's another thing. It's like it it's interesting to analyze in certain movies the way that they uh, portray murder. Uh, it makes me think a little bit of uh, the Hunger Games and how in the first Hunger Games movie, the uh, only kill that Katniss actually gets is essentially revenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's after... Uh, spoilers for anyone who hasn't read or seen Hunger Games. It's after Rue dies. And so... In, even though it's it's something it's one of those things that like in any story, not just the Hunger Games, like that they don't address in the narrative, but it's a thing where it's like, oh well, this was a justified killing, or oh they were doing it in self defense, or oh it, they didn't intentionally do this, and so we can sort of let it slide. Uh, and that first death, the first one, uh, is like Seymour goes there intending to shoot the guy. But then the guy sort of dies on his own. And so it's like, oh, well, the outcome we wanted happened, and Seymour didn't have to dirty his soul by actually killing someone. Now that bit gets progressively less and less uh, able to be argued as time goes on. Like, and it, like, specifically starting with Mushnik, and then, uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I just stopped in the middle of the sentence there, but... <laughs> uh, well, yeah, specifically after Mushnik, it's like, well, that one that one was a little less of a... Of a uh, he, he could have done something about that, and he probably should have done something about that. Mm-hmm. But even then, it's like Mushnik, the way he's talking to Seymour, he's sort of, like, blackmailing him. And so, like, it is sort of like a progression. That is... One thing that I guess they sort of did consistently is that progression of how cool are we with murder? (laughs) And we could even talk about that with Hannibal. With Will. (laughs) There's a progression there. Or The Walking Dead. But that's a whole other tangent. (laughs) That's a whole different bucket of syrup. And I don't know if there's anything else I wanted to talk about with this, so... You? I think I'm covered. All right. Uh, so, um, what's our what's next on our schedule here? Next on our schedule is Repo, the Genetic Opera. Oh, that one will be fun. Uh... <laughs> oh, yes. Well, uh, thank you for taking the time to listen to our... Uh, Incredibly rambling uh, discussion of the little shop of ours. Um, we hope you'll join us in two weeks to listen to what I'm sure will be an impassioned discussion of uh, Repo the Genetic Opera. Because uh, <laughs> as much as that film's a mess, it's it's kind of our mess. So. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, I, I feel very, uh, <laughs> very protective of that. Here, if you have never, if you have no reference point with Repo the Genetic Opera, let me just say, Giles from Buffy, Christine from the original Phantom of the Opera, uh, 
Alexa Vega from Spy Kids. Paris Hilton. <laughs> if that isn't enough to get you at least intrigued. <laughs> and by Christine from the original Phantom of the Opera, I mean Sarah Brightman. <laughs> yeah, you have to at least approach it as like, what could this possibly look like? Yeah. And <laughs> it then... will be different from what you expect. I can guarantee that. Whatever you have pictured in your head. It's not that. <laughs> All of those actors, and then throw in organ repossession. And just buying it, man. Just yeah. just everybody buys it so hard. <laughs> Anthony Stewart Head is on board for everything he says in that movie. Oh, dude, and he's so, he's so, he delivers an unnecessarily awesome performance. Okay, we shouldn't, we shouldn't do this episode now, so. Yeah, seriously. Okay. <laughs> so. If uh, if you guys would like to reach out to us, um, we will uh, we'll have our information coming up uh, coming up right now. Yep, and pay attention to the Tumblr and the Twitter to see when I'm doing live tweets. If those happen, hopefully they will. We should have like links to our personal Twitter somewhere because I feel like we're more active on those. Yeah, I, we, we're a little bit more active on those now. If since those aren't in the ending. Uh, contact stuff, uh, I'll just say I am at idoherty451 on Twitter. That's at I-D-O-H-E-R-T-Y 451. Yeah, and uh, you can reach me at, at Mike Fiorella. That's M-I-K-E F-I-O-R-I-L-L-A. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're a little more active on those now that uh, now that we're not live-tweeting like Hannibal and such out of the A Matter of Taste uh, Twitter. And, yeah, his name is Mike. How weird is that? So crazy. <laughs> so strange. All right. Well, uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll uh, we'll welcome you back next week as we discuss Repo. So good night, everyone. Good night. In two weeks. Oh, yeah, two weeks. My bad. It's okay. Good night. This has been A Matter of Taste. If you'd like to get in contact with us, Email us at a matter of taste podcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at AOMOT Podcast. Find full episode posts at a matter of taste podcast.blogspot.com. And follow us as a matter of taste podcast on Tumblr, Facebook, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.